In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. So this is exciting. Tom Hanks is not just one of the most recognizable and beloved actors in the world, but now he's taken all those experiences he's had from five decades of making film and TV and turned them into his first novel. So there's lots to talk to Tom Hanks about, and we talked about all of it. Why is it impossible to make a film at all, much less one that people like? What do you learn from being in a bad movie that you can't learn from being in a good one? Why it's a sin for you to walk out of a movie at all, even a bad one? Why was a guest spot on The Love Boat one of the most important roles he's ever taken on? And given how hard and frustrating filmmaking is, what makes it worth it? I learned a lot from this conversation with Tom Hanks. And yeah, he's as nice as they say he is. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. It is hard to overstate the importance of Tom Hanks to modern popular culture. Like, if you look at his IMDb page, the list of the films he's been in, it's like a syllabus for important film courses in university, like this one. Life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. So Forrest Gump. Or there's this one, which uh, walked so all other rom-coms could run. Hey, tell them what you did. Dad. Christmas Eve, he phones in one of those radio call-in shows, tells them, I need a new wife. So that's Sleepless in Seattle. But then there's Big, Philadelphia, Saving Private Ryan, Castaway, Toy Story, A League of Their Own, The Terminal, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Sully, The Elvis Movie, all the other ones that I'm not mentioning right now that you're yelling at your phone or drafting an email to tell me all about. Uh, So Tom Hanks, interesting dude. Uh, He collects typewriters. He loves World War II movies. And he has a reputation as maybe the nicest guy in Hollywood. I'll be honest with you. When we got him on uh, Zoom, I was a little nervous about it because I was like, can this guy's reputation line up with the person I'm about to talk to here? Spoiler alert, yeah, it did. He's like as nice over Zoom as he is in any of his films and in any interview you've ever seen. He actually might be warmer. He might be even more generous given that he talked to me for over an hour. So on today's show, we're doing something we've never done before. We're dedicating the whole episode to just one interview because today... Tom Hanks is putting out his first ever novel. It's called The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece. It's a novel about the movie business. It's about a fictional blockbuster and how it was created, like the lives that had to be lived for it to be created. And yeah, it's it's fictional, but it's also about everything that Tom Hanks has gone through throughout his remarkable career. Here is my conversation with Tom Hanks. Hey, how are you? Hey, thanks, Tom Power. You know, when you say, when anybody says, yes, I've, uh, I've written my first novel, what they should say is, yes, I've written a novel. <laughs> <laughs> first, it's like, first, first has a hint of more to come. How do you know, you know? Hey, that's whistling in the dark, you ask me. Yeah, but hey, this is, the, this is the, the, Tom, this is the first of my 46 novels that I've written 
I better get to work. Whose voice is that you're doing? Is that like what I oh, imagine the, John Updike sounds like to you? Yeah, that's essential. That's me trying to sound more serious than, or you know, more confident than I actually feel. So that's how I sound all the time. Um, tell me, I know you're a typewriter aficionado. Would you have written any of this on, on typewriters? Only, you know, very rough stuff, paragraphs, very rough drafts. Sometimes when I was just somewhere and I wanted, to, I had a thought in my head and, and wanted to kind of get it down. Because I, I will confess, I always have a, I have, always have a typewriter relatively nearby. And, some, and sometimes also I didn't want it to, to feel as though I was actually setting down to a work session. Uh, typewriter is, is kind of like, it, it, it's just a slightly elevated version of quill pen on parchment. You know, it's like uh, you go for the aesthetics as much as you do for what is, in, in, in the result it ends up being on paper. Because sometimes I just like the sound and I just like the posture and I just like the uh, sort of the cadence of what what comes out. But in order to write something, you know, start to finish on a tie. Who does that? I didn't I didn't even do that in high school for crying out loud as crossovers and X outs and double spacing and things like that. I, I couldn't I couldn't write for real on a typewriter on a bet. I'm struck that you said I didn't want this to feel like a work process. Was writing this novel meant to be something a little bit more fun or, or something more for you? Look, I don't, I don't want to discount. It's work. There's no way around it. You sit down and you work and you work. But it was not for me. Uh, it wasn't a burden. For a guy who has my day job, which is working with an awful lot of people in a grand collaborative process of making a movie, delivering unto those people the raw materials of my instinct and and in my preparation and and my desire to what to do with the role but then i get to walk away from it and everybody else does i mean a ton of people do a, a bunch of work to it and then at the end i get to look at it and uh, judge whether or not it you know it kind of works or does not work i mean just by way of my own very subjective and selfish and hubris ridden uh, opinion Writing, uh, which I have always done various versions of over the course of uh, uh, particularly the last uh, 30 years, is a, a, a bit of a, excuse me, one second. I'm now going to sneeze. <laughs> like that? That's called being allergic to Canadian no, public media. Just, That's what that is. It's a really common, it's a common ailment we get all the time. There was a little bit of the whole wheat bread from my sandwich that was lodged <laughs> in the bathroom. But to go back. It's not the glitz, it's the glamour. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the glitter, it's the glamour. Um, to to write from blank, uh, from blank canvas, it's a cross between a hobby and, and a mission. The plot of this book is an interesting one. I mean, you write about the creation of a movie from the idea that inspired it all the way to the, the premiere. This is obviously a process that you know well. I mean, as an actor, you made pretty much every type of movie. I mean, there's comedies like A League of Their Own. There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. And there's dramas like Philadelphia. I served my clients consistently, thoroughly, with absolute excellence. If they hadn't fired me, that's what I'd be doing today. I mean, pretty much every other genre I can think of. Why did you want to write about the life cycle of a movie? I don't think that the grand aspect of how many people are involved in making a movie gets the credit or the due that it does. By and large, everybody thinks they know how movies are made. Mm. And I will tell you this, the odds are against you being able to make any movie. Yeah, yeah. Any, any movie, is it's a miracle that it gets made at all. Yeah, 
the odds are equally stacked against you making the movie that you want to make. Yeah. And then the odds are, are still stacked against you about making a movie that works. And this does hinge on a handful of bolts from the heavens, literally a deus ex machina. Okay, how much of the stories and experiences in this book, on the filmmaking side especially, are coming from your own experiences on films? Because you've been in films where, as you pointed, the, the bolts of lightning from the heavens have struck. And have have missed by a mile, too. It's a checkered career, Tom. It's a checkered career. But nonetheless... That know, was my next question. All right. Um, the, uh, I have witnessed everything that happens in the odd, like, human behavior aspect of making this movie. I've witnessed it, and I've caused some, and I've said some of the things, and I myself have been the point of consternation for any number of moments in the course of making the movie. But you have to understand that movies are made three completely different times that are independent of each other. There is everything that goes in what we would call pre-production, which is what is the script, who is hired, where do you shoot it? How many days is it going to be? Is it possible in the first place? What is it going to look like? That is a battle royale that goes on for however many years <laughs> goes into the, the movie being in some ideas, some ahead. But then also the very specific moment, cash flow begins. As soon as someone says, we are going to make this movie as soon as we can. And sometimes they make it in six months. Sometimes they make it in 18 months. Sometimes they start making it in six weeks. But that battle royale is finite. It stops the moment you start shooting the motion picture. And however long that shoot lasts, oh, dear Lord, it's it, what you're just trying to hold on to the mast of a ship during a wicked storm and not go over. You just try to make it through. I will tell you, for those in your audience who might say, well, I've read some books and seen some movies that sort of capture this. No, you haven't. Because no, none that I have read anyway. I think the only the only motion picture that truly does say this is what it's like to make a movie is Truffaut's Day for Night, which was called American Night in France. And that actually captures how just how goofy a, a line of work this can be sometimes. Now, you'd go through all of that, and there's absolutely no guarantee if the audience is going to care or not. Then it has to enter into the realm of box populi, what everybody thinks about it. But then, believe it or not, there's a fifth act to this structure, which is time. Uh, time goes by. And maybe it's, maybe it's three or four seasons. Maybe, maybe it's 20 years, which a movie might be seen again and then reconsidered for what it meant and where it was. The best example of this is everybody's near favorite Christmas movie is It's a Wonderful Life. I told you, I'm your guardian angel. I know everything about you. Well, you look about like the kind of an angel I'd get. What happened to your wings? I haven't worn my wings yet. That's why I'm an angel second class. It's a Wonderful Life, I believe, came out in 1949 and was dismissed as Capricorn. It did not do well. It was not well received. It didn't do great box office. And uh, even though it, I think it was nominated for a number of awards, it was a pure also ran and then disappeared and was lost in a rights struggle for a really long time. And it wasn't until it came out again, I'm going to say somewhere in the 1970s, 72, 73, the rights became available again and PBS aired it um, with no commercials. <clears throat> and just like 
that this movie came roaring back and was completely reappreciated. It's now the classic as it is. Get me back to my wife and kids. Help me, Clarence, please. I want to live again. I want to live again. So the whole damn thing is a cuckoo crapshoot, you know, it's you're, you're just walking a you're just walking a minefield of whether or not any of this is going to matter to anyone. But if you go at it with armed with instinct and total faith in the process, um, you might have fun. <laughs> you might have fun making the movie. But I'm going to tell you right now, you do some night shoots in the rain for four days in a row and you're not having any fun at all making that movie. Nobody why am I getting a vibe of passing on some wisdom from you right now? Like passing on some knowledge, passing on some perspective? Well, I think it ends up being a, an understanding that everybody is working really super hard at something that eventually is taken for granted. And a, an example of this, you know, the Maltese Falcon. Say you have a, a scene of, and this was one of a taxi cab pulling up. Hey, Frank. Oh, hello, Mr. Spade. You got plenty of gas? Sure thing. 26 is a number, and the sooner the better. Correct. Humphrey Bogart gets out of the cab, pays the driver, goes around uh, another car, and walks into a building and happens to look both ways before he does. Come here, Mr. Spade? Yeah. That's just a scene in the it means absolutely nothing. And yet, I know everything that went into the, the shooting of that individual scene. First off, it's a night shoot. Secondly, it's on the back lot at Warner Brothers. Uh, thirdly, there is probably somewhere between 80 to 100 background extras who have been hired that day to come in from their apartments all over Southern California, sign in, go through the entrance, get their costumes, have a ticket for lunch. Then there's all the cars that are necessary involved. Some are parked, many are driving up back and forth, all right? Now, that takes a long time in order to set up with old carbon arcs. We're talking about a shot that probably took the better part of six hours, and that's half a day's work. And then you add to it, okay, we are now ready. Mr. Bogart, if you will get in the back of the taxi, all right? Every Before any scene begins, I think in my head, are we ready? All right. Are we rolling? Let's roll. Everybody, action, background, background, action, keep moving. Cue the car, please. Cue the car. Bring the car along and action. And then it happens. And then that's it. That's the only thing that happened for those six hours. Now, how do you suspend disbelief in the course of making that? How many people's jobs actually are on the line at that individual moment. The guy driving the cab, the guy operating the camera, the ADs that are in charge of all the background extras and where they go, all the lighting that went into it. It is a ton of work that if you want to appreciate, you will appreciate to the maximum degree. Or if you just want to look at it as yet another scene in a movie, you can. I know, and I have been through the nuts and bolts of doing a uh, hundred scenes, a <laughs> hundred scenes in that, in over four movies that worked out, uh, that turned out to be pretty good. And I know that the conversations that you have about people's lives, about how they got there, what they're doing, what they hope to do, other movies that they did, what their kids are going through, et cetera, are really, it's the stuff of a life experience that is periodically interrupted by, are we ready? And okay, rolling action, come ahead, car, and 
and cut, 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 back to one, folks, that car didn't come, you know, there all kinds of stuff gets in there. And I think it's just fascinating. And I think other people might think it's fascinating, too. I, I agree that it's fascinating. I mean, especially to see it through your eyes. When did you first realize it? Like when you, you must have been like me at some point, you must have been like everybody else at some point coming into a, a coming into a, a film set or going into a TV set and being wowed by the magic of the mundanity of it. Um, when, when did you first sort of become aware of that, of that beauty of that magic of that sort of like collective coming together? Well, the first time you do it, you're just you're just dizzy from the experience. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you now, Mike. The first the first first time I actually experienced something like "Holy cow! I don't know what I'm doing." Was on an episode of The Love Boat that I shot in in June of 19, uh, 1980. I had done the pilot for Bosom Buddies, but that was like doing a, a fun thing with a bunch of friends. It was a uh, Shot a, it was shot like a three camera comedy thing. I kind of had an instinctive thrust of what that was, but when it came down to one camera something, I mean, I was there. I was on the deck of the love boat, and there's the hot tub, and there's the bar, and there's everybody walking around in their sailor suits. Julie's a great looking lady, but don't you get a little tired being tied down to just one girl? Oh well, uh, I got tired of that uh, girl in every port routine, Rick. <laughs> I was so exhausted I could hardly work. And I did not know what to do, but I got, I had a sense of, oh, I see what everybody does. Everybody corrals in their own heads how silly this whole process is and pretends that it's not silly while the camera is running and brings to it some degree of intent and honesty and authenticity. And uh, and at the end of it, they they put it all together. Now, look, I was in, enthralled. Of, I, I couldn't believe I, I had a walk on pass to 20th Century Fox. As you do it more. And of course, as you as you also have a desire to expand your own creative horizons and as you live up to your own fears and make it through on occasion, you realize that, oh, everybody on this set is having to fight this same battle of uh, their own hubris, thinking they can do it, as well as the own uh, just surreal oddity of pretending to be somebody else in this fake room. But then also having to bow down without any hesitation to the moments that it works. I mean, it, uh, it's astounding when it works in a movie that you yourself helped make happen in a different way than it is when you just see a film as a fan and you're looking at uh, some other magical piece of uh, what I call the arts and sciences of motion pictures. When you are allowed into the lab yourself, you realize, oh, these stakes are even greater than I thought they were because they're personal. I wanted to ask you about writing um, and about someone who you've always said is very important to your career. In the acknowledgments of your book, you write that, quote, these pages would not exist without Nora, the, the writer and director Nora Ephron. The two of you first worked together in 93 on the movie Sleepless in Seattle. Um, I've had the chance to talk to her sister, Adelia Efron, uh, but Nora's no longer with us. I know you've always called her a visionary director, but why was she important to you as a writer? Uh, she told me I was a writer when I didn't realize I was a writer. When we first met for uh, Sleepless in Seattle, I was a big shot. I had everybody telling me I was a big shot. There were all these people, of course, you know, weighing, you know, offers. Maybe I could do this. Maybe I could do that. 
And, you know, I was intimidated by Nora because she was Nora. I mean, her, her, you know, her, her prowess and uh, the, you know, her uh, intellectual level and her acidity walks into the room before she does a little bit because, you know, you're meeting with Nora. But we started talking about, started talking movie and I had this problem with it and I had that problem with it and I had this problem, blah, 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 blah. And uh, Nora was very, very patient. Uh, and uh, once we got around to actually doing the movie and uh, Nora rehearses, uh, rehearses her stuff, it did rehearse her stuff, God bless her, um, in a different way. By the way, Delia was there the entire time because it was co-written by Delia. Um, and so here are these two women that are running rehearsals in sort of like a play that tape, the set is taped out and a lot of the scenes are you know, eight pages long, 15 pages long. So you can actually rehearse them and get down to them in real time. But most movies do not. Most movies don't bother doing that. You might do read-throughs, but you won't actually get up and start moving around. And I was complaining continuously that men are not undone by their sons. Oh, boo-hoo. My son doesn't want me to go out. You know what I'd say to the little bastard? If I was going out on a date and he tried, I, and I, I, I just kept going on all this kind of stuff. And Nora and, and Delia would say, well, what, what would you say? I said, well, I would say this, la, la, la. And um, they took that and they put it in the movie. There is no way that we are going on a plane to meet some woman who could be a crazy, sick lunatic. Didn't you see Fatal Attraction? You wouldn't let me. Well, I saw it and it scared the out of me. It scared the every man in America. Once the movie came out, I said, uh, you know, I said, hey, you know, that that stuff was pretty funny. And Nora said, well, you wrote that. And I said, no, I, I didn't wrote it. I just said it. And you guys, you guys put it in the movie. And they said, and she said, that's what writing is. <laughs> so from that, when I had always been trying to, quote unquote, write, I, I ended up my makeup man, uh, Danny Strepek was his name. His last movie with me was the Da Vinci Code. Uh, he turned 75 the day we wrapped the Da Vinci Code. And uh, a couple of weeks later, he called me up, well, kid, I want you to be the first to know I'm done. And when I mean done, I mean done, done. I said, wait, you're, <clears throat> I said, you're pulling the plug. Yeah, I'm no more 45 a.m. calls for me. I'm finished. And I, I started, and by that time, I had known so, he and I had shared so many stories about the cuckoo aspect of the business. This was a man who, who, hello, <laughs> he worked on Giant. Uh, he worked on The Magnificent Seven. He manufactured Laurence Olivier's nose for Spartacus. And he did Elvis's tan in five or six Elvis movies. So he had stories. So I said, could I maybe try to do like a profile of you? And uh, he said, sure. So I interviewed him and I sent it to Nora. And we began this occasional exchange in which I would send it to, I sent it to her and I said, hey, Nora, is this a thing? Meaning like, does this have a cohesive beginning, middle and end? Is this worthwhile of sharing with anybody? And she said, yes, it is a thing. It needs work. You have to, you have to, you have to remember voice, voice, voice. But I think it should go into the Thursday style section of the New York Times. And that's exactly what happened. So Nora told me I was a writer, showed me how to be a writer, reminded me of all the hard work that it required to be a writer, but also did imprint this very important thing about being a writer, which is you really do have to write, don't you? 
first part of my conversation with Tom Hanks, the actor, director, and writer. His new novel is called The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece. You just heard him talking a little bit about his relationship with the legendary director and writer, Nora Ephron. So coming up in the next part of our conversation, Tom Hanks is going to tell you about something I've never really heard anyone talk about before. You work really, really hard on a movie. You spend like months and years making it. And then it gets a big premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, a big glitzy premiere, and you rent a tuxedo and people are wearing gowns. And then after all that blood, sweat, and tears you put into making that movie the best you could, the reviews come out and it's just destroyed. Or even worse, like it's lukewarm reviews. Tom Hanks is aware of bad reviews. He knows he's had them. He's read them. And he's going to tell you how you can put moments like that into perspective. Plus, we're going to talk about just the jam of jams. Can I say hot take my favorite Tom Hanks movie? He's going to talk about That Thing You Do coming up after this on Q. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude and McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, here, there, and everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All movies end up having these days of whimsical magic of, of of a shared experience that is some combination of the hardest you'll ever work, the most fun uh, you'll ever have at summer camp, and the most you will ever learn. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Today is a very special episode of Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with Tom Hanks, who, of course, has had an incredible career in film and TV. He's one of the most recognizable, one of the most beloved actors in showbiz history. And because he's been doing it for about five decades now, Tom Hanks has kind of seen it all when it comes to film and TV. And he's taken those experiences and he's put them into his first ever novel, which is out today. The novel's called The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece. Now, it's his first novel, but it's not his first time writing. He wrote a book of short stories in 2017. Uh, He's also written a few screenplays. I'm actually a really big fan of the first screenplay he ever wrote. I don't know if you've seen it. It's one of the great, like, music movies. So that's where this part of our conversation takes off. And then uh, we talk a little bit about, you know, given how hard and grueling it is to make a movie in the first place, why do it? Like, what, what makes it worth it? Here's more of my conversation with Tom Hanks. 
I am one of those people who was obsessed with that thing you do. <laughs> like I was, <laughs> like when I was a kid, I rent, my, my aunt Patsy rented that thing you do at the video store in St. John's, Newfoundland, where I'm from. And I was like a Beatles fanatic. I was 12 and I adored it. Like I absolutely loved it. And I know that, I think that was your first screenplay. Does writing a screenplay give you compassion for that side of things? Oh, dear Lord. I think everybody let's let's take the three biggies. Okay, Um, writers, directors and actors. I think every one of those people should have to do both jobs at some point (laughs) so that they will understand just what is at stake. Every actor should have to write something and direct it and hand it uh, and direct something to find out just how viciously a plan can go off the rails. So, so fast. you should write something and hear and hear uh, an actor say, I can't make sense out of this. I got to change this. I don't get it. And every director should have to act and every director should have to write and every writer should have to act and every writer should have to direct just so they can understand the grand creative process that goes into the mix. A screenplay requires a beginning, middle and end that only comes from you, the writer, and then has to go through uh, a maelstrom of other people bringing into it an idea. Uh, as well as uh, an accurate record of of, uh, of what you know they think uh, goes through your head, and so it still remains a very, very, very collaborative process. I will tell you this: I loved making that thing you do. All my family is in it. I'm still friends with everybody who is there. And if someone says, "Would you like to remake any movie you have ever made?" I say, "Yeah, I'd like to remake that thing you do every five years because it was a blast to do. Love the music and love the people and everything in it." That started off as a uh, philosophy uh, for me, as far as filmmaking, was adhered to. And I learned from Tak Fujimoto, who shot it, what not to worry about as a director. And I learned from actors like Steve Zahn and everybody else in the cast. Uh, I'd have to name them all right now, but they all brought something to the words that I wrote down that was 10 times better than I ever would imagine. And I just bowed down in, in, in uh, humble submission to, to their brilliance. But if I was going to say, did anything work out in that movie exactly the way I wanted it to, I can literally point to one, one section. And it's the only time when I, even when I, it's the only thing I will stick to and watch now if it comes up on the grid, you know, I said, have they heard their song on, on WJET yet? No, no. Oh, no, they haven't. That's the only section of it that actually came out according to what I wrote, the storyboards that I scribbled out and what I told the actors to do. Faye Liv is putting a, a posted stamp on a letter and putting it in a mailbox. And they're all listening to the radio and the song comes on WJET. A local Erie fan's got a new record out. Just won the Mercyhurst talent show a couple of weeks ago. This is Erie's own <laughs> And one by one, they all hear it. And one by one, they all gather at, at, at Patterson's department store to listen to it on every floor stereo that they have. They turn it up as loud as they can. And um, it looked the way I wanted it to look. It felt the way I wanted to look. And here's, here's the bigger thing. I know some pretty, pretty, pretty big names, pretty good, bold-faced names in the rock and roll business. Um, that is the one. See, the, the greatest rock and roll movie of all time is Spinal Tap. Everybody says, if you want to know what it's like to be in the band, watch Spidal Tap. Yeah, yeah. But they have also said, if you want to know what it was like the first time we heard our song on the radio, 
watch that thing you do. That's 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 the spirit that they cast. Some big shot has told you that some some big. I'm going to tell you more than some big shots. A ton of big shots. Who who what which big shot told you that? Ah, uh, you know what? I'm just gonna you know I believe in fame anonymous. I'm not going to put anybody on the spot. But it uh, was done of Brooks and Dunn, wasn't it? Tell the truth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, among others, among others, you know, I'm not going to say it was Brooks and Dunn, but there are there are some people in Nashville. There are some people from Liverpool. Well, there are some people from there are some people from Jersey. Well. Uh, there are some people from Hollywood who have said to me, yeah, that was, that's what it was like when we heard our song on the radio the first time. One of my favorite lines in your book describes making movies as, quote, a stressful job done by vulnerable human beings, all cracked vessels, all fraught with insecurities. How true does that ring to your own life? I wondered when I read that passage whether that was just the narrator speaking. Oh no, no, that's that that's everybody that I've that I've come across. It's everybody in the hair and makeup trailer. It's it's guys on the prop truck. Here is and my God, it's me every time I look at myself in the mirror at 545 in the morning before I go out and get driven to work by the Teamster. There is a um there's a there's a barrier that everybody has to get over, and that is uh, some degree of their own self-loathing, some degree of their own questioning of whether or not they are prepared to do the job on the day, but qualified to do the job in the first place. Have I done enough to warrant these people's faith in me? And um, I can tell you that over time, uh, the only way I could get a cup of coffee in down me and and pick up my script and go off to work at the beginning any of the workday is a uh, uh, is in the understanding that I felt like this before and I made it through the day. And you know what? You you end up having to 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 navigate a preordained nervous breakdown in front of everybody on the crew. In order to get on on film, what is required of you as an artist? Wilson, Wilson, Wilson. Now that's one thing that you often have to do. One of the other things on the other side. Uh, okay, that's the red in the spectrum. The indigo, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. The violet on the other side of that professional and emotional spectrum is the days where you have to be funny and light and charming. The space goes And your life is falling apart. You know, you've just you've just read the details of, you know, your divorce settlement that has come in from her lawyers. You've just realized that you've been torn apart by something you did on uh, inadvertently said or did in a restaurant somewhere and people are out to get you or you've just had the biggest fight with your 13-year-old daughter over something that you cannot control and you're wondering why she's so upset about it. And you know what you have to do? You have to go be charming. You have to go be funny and loving. And both of those, the yin and yang of those, uh, those, those, uh, those voyages on the, those, those men on the flying tr emotional trampeze, they tear you apart after a while. And I've gone home exhausted, literally spent like, not only spent like, I don't want to do this anymore because it's just so painful to have to go there. But then the next day, you know what's expected of me? 
I'm going to have to pull up in a taxi and get out of the car and pay the driver and then walk into a building just like Humphrey Bogart did in that one scene from the Maltese Falcon. That's not that bad a thing to do. I can I can handle that today. Does it does it get any better? Like I watched this interview with Conan O'Brien uh, not that long ago. Conan's very, very important to me. And I watched this interview with him and he um, someone said, like, you know, you've struggled with imposter syndrome and insecurity and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, you are now a, a, a well tenured. I mean, I think he's been doing it. The next person has been doing it longer than him would be like he's the longest, probably the longest serving late night. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he's like yeah, the Carson yeah, of that of that era now. Yeah. And he he said, like, well, you know, I just like to be really honest about the fact that it never quite goes away. You're always hoping, is this good enough? Was that okay? Same thing could be said to you, Tom. I mean, I don't, I don't have to tell you how many awards you've won and like how many big films you've been in, some of the biggest films of all time. Does that, does that go away? Does it go away a little? Nope. Doesn't go away at all. You start off at square one and nothing, nothing that you did prior matters uh, to anybody but the critics. I mean, every, every review of every movie you make now is actually a, re- is a review of every movie you've ever made. <laughs> that you you carry your countenance into whatever the next gig is. But that means nothing outside of how, where everybody's attention or emotions are invested seven seconds into what that movie is. You've, you've got to, you got to begin at the beginning and you got to carry it through to the end. And the only way to do that is to hopefully make the right alliance choice in the first place, but then also bring the goods every day. I, I will tell you this, the only thing that has I won't say gotten easier because nothing comes easier when you learn by all your mistakes is I am better, I think, now at not paying attention to the stuff that that will only get in the way. I have probably seen as is a, as is I think the novel is a uh, is a record of this. I've seen everything that can get in the way of the movie getting made that day. And I've also experienced an awful lot of stuff that can get in the way of me as the artist, the professional, not being able to show up in the course of the day and getting to where I have to or having more trouble going where I have to. I'm not thrown by distractions on the set. I don't see the camera crew anymore. Um, I'm not worried about my line of sight. I now have a bigger, bigger, uh, what's the word? I feel more fortified if I truly feel as though I have done three things. I have shown up on time and actually on time now is actually early. I like to get to work early so that I can have a cup of coffee, chat with some people that I see by accident, meander up to where I'm supposed to be. And I'm not told what to do from the moment I get it. I, I get that. That's one thing I, I now do. I've learned that. And that makes the day go by, quote unquote, easier. I also uh, pride myself on knowing the text. Now, that does not necessarily mean knowing all my lines verbatim, because sometimes you don't want to learn the lines verbatim. And I think that we touch on this in the book a little bit. What you do is you want to learn them well enough to then be impacted by what everybody else is doing, because it's a you're on a ball club. You can't say, I am going to move forward and, and cut the ball off. No, you don't know where the ball's going yet. So you have to, you have to know the text, the story, the scene well enough so that when the time comes, you can go any direction that you need to. And the last thing <clears throat> that, um, and by the way, anytime anybody asks me, oh, how do you be at this? These are the three things you have to do. Um, then you also have to have an idea in your pocket that you're not telling anybody about. You have to have this, 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 uh, this, uh, this perspective of what it, the scene is about and what it is, what is possible and where it can go that you don't share with anybody else. 
Tom, I'm a, I'm a musician, not an actor. I don't, I don't understand that one. Can you explain that one to me a bit? <laughs> be that last one of the idea of having a, having a... Yeah, that one, that last one about something that they don't... I got okay, the first two. It's like this. A director says, um, would you go to the window and look out? And some actors would say, why would I do that? But what I might have in my pocket is, uh, which I haven't told anybody, this is, yeah, as a matter of fact, I can go out and look at it. And, and I don't have to tell them why. The reason I'm going out to look out the window is because there's a car across the street that I'd really like to buy. And I'm looking at it and I think, man, if I could afford the money, I would have that car right there. And I just want to steal one more little look at it. Now, what does that mean? That's the idea I have in my pocket that my character does not have the car that he wants to have. He wishes he was richer. He wishes he more powerful. Why does he want that car to pick up chicks? Maybe he's, maybe he's not getting laid as much as he wants to when he think a car. So that's the type of superstructure to your character and the whole story. You know, we had, a, we had, a, uh, th there was an example of this and I, I, I don't want to be that kind of like name dropper. Come on, you know. come on. Um, okay. I'll tell, I'll, I'll tell you this one thing. Um, I made a movie called, this was early going on. And this is one of the first movies in which the director said, you need to come up with some stuff for this. I said, I do uh, punchline with Sally field. It was direct written, directed by a guy named David Seltzer. Uh, it was a great movie to make comedy stylings. What did that mean? Like he's not a dermatologist. He's a skin stylist, not a dentist, but a tooth stylist, not a barber, but a barb stylist, a hair stylist. Well, a, a hairstylist. I guess I would be right. One, I was, we were working on um, my stand-up routine, my, my comedy. I was working with Barry Sobel uh, and uh, another friend of mine. And uh, we were sitting around talking. We were trying to come up with jokes because I was taking, I was taking the act out into clubs and trying to work it out. So we would actually be doing a stand-up comedy bit as opposed to acting a stand-up comedy bit. And I said, oh, this is amazing. I just had the greatest. I just had the greatest idea. My mother committed suicide. My mother committed suicide. And that's one of the reasons I'm on stage. So I ran down. They were, they were shooting at the time uh, on the set. And we were up in the office. And I ran. I said, David, 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 can I talk to you? And he said, yeah, what? What would I say? Listen, listen. What if Stephen's mother had committed suicide? And he looked at me and said, okay. He said, well, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to make a scene about that. We're not going to write a moment where you explain you're a stand-up comedian because your mom committed suicide. But just keep that in your pocket. That's literally what his words were. Just keep that in your pocket. And ever since then, ever since then, uh, I can go into, in, and that's the other area where it says you got to know the text and you got to know it, but you got to be able to move in any direction. There's a lot of times where I think the actor's job is to provide his own, their own motivation for anything that happens in the scene. And you can't do that unless you have an idea in your pocket. So those are the three things that I've learned to do before I show up to work. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying I've known all my dialogue every single day. <laughs> because time catches up on you sometimes, but um, that 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 uh, over time that makes, and I'm not saying it makes it easier, uh, but I will say it will br it brings clarity to the duties that I've laid out for myself. Let me ask this before we go: If there's one thing that comes through in this story, it's that making movies is hard. 
Like, I remember when I started doing this show, I, I was torn and, and playing bands and stuff like that. And I, I was one of these people that was like, oh, yeah, I, there are movies I like and the movies I don't like. And then as I started to talk to directors and started to talk to actors and stuff like that, I remember talking to a friend of mine and going, like, I can't believe anything is any good. Like, I can't believe anything is any good. Like, how much can go wrong every step of it? I mean, I, I got on stage with my band. I, I knew the set. I knew what we were going to play. I knew what songs would make the crowd go. It was like six of us, you know what I mean, including the crew. Yeah. What was the name of the band, Tom? The the, the Dardanelles. It was like fiddle fiddle and accordion oh, music wow. and that kind of stuff. Wow. Yeah, I'm gonna, like, you're going to make some money off of me on iTunes. I'm going to go <laughs> yeah. buy, I'm going to go download all the, all the LPs of the Dardanelles. I'm looking forward to buying that bag of chips with all the, with, with all the residuals. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I might make 30 cents. I'm looking forward to it, yeah. Um, but, but I remember saying like, I can't believe anything gets made at all, and then I can't believe it's it's any good. And then in this book, I mean, there's there's you write about projects projects getting stuck in development hell. I've met people yep. in L.A. who have made have houses and cars, and nothing's been made in twenty years. Yeah, you know, they yeah, just absolutely true. They yeah, just yeah. they just have they just sell scripts, and nothing ever comes of them. You know, uh, working actors, you know, waiting around on set all day. Directors trying to wrestle up funding, financiers trying to get involved. Uh, everything we've talked about today, what makes it worth it? The struggle, as um, Bertolt Brecht once said, triumph through struggle. Uh, the the journey is worth more than the destination, if that makes sense. The okay, I'll I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll I'll tell you. Here's a story. Darlene Love. All right, Darlene Love. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. assume all the public radio listeners and all those in Canada know exactly who Darlene Love is. All right? One of the greatest singers, R&B, soul, pop singers of all time. Yeah. Of all friggin' time. You know, the, a legendary voice of Motown uh, along pr- plenty of others. So He's a rebel, right? Uh, uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe one of my favorite songs. Also, the Christmas song, Christmas. Pretty lights on the tree. Yeah. Pretty lights on the tree. I'm watching the shine. You should be here with me. Baby, please come home. All right, so I'm on the David Letterman show one year, on the Christmas show. And my God, I'm going to be on the show that Darlene Love and like the I think it was like the Coast Guard Orchestra and every had a huge rendition of that might have been the two uh, different thing. Anyway, it's Darlene Love. And I got to meet her. And I said, my and I I probably knew more about Darlene Love from listening to other, you know, biographies of her. And I said, my my Lord, Darlene Love, here you are still cracking it, still at the top of your game gone through all you did at one point darlene love was reduced to cleaning people's houses on her hands and knees while they were listening to her songs on the radio right so she had a you know she had a tough life and i thought and here you are still sharing it all and still bringing with us if nothing else the magnificent joy of springtime so thank you for being here darling love and she said this to me said honey i'm just here for the hang and that's what makes it worth it, the hang, the, that being part of something much, much bigger than yourself, uh, a gamble every step of the way, a minefield. Maybe you're doing it great. Maybe you're doing it wrong. Maybe they'll just deliver it all and someone will cut it together and it's horrible. But then someone else will take over the cutting it together and it'll be great. Common thing happens all the time in motion pictures. 
It has happened to some of that I've been in. Um, that is after the fact of the true life experience. The life experience you have is the making of the movie, the going to the set every day, the three weeks or the nine weeks or the 14 weeks that you're on location or you're getting, or you're getting off at Overland every day off of the 10 and driving down to the studio and going through the, uh, the motor Avenue gate onto the, onto the stage. Um, the, you, a movie is made by a bunch of individuals, um, in 24 hour increments. Yeah. And at the end of it, they go their separate ways and all they really have with them as the memory is the experiences of those days. The, the movie will be like a photograph in, in an album at the end of the day. And maybe it's good. Maybe it's horrible. 50, 50. Actually, I'm going to say it's more like an 80. No, I'm going to say 95% chance. It's not going to be great. 5% chance it is going to work. But what do you walk away from? I walk away from laughing in the car with three other guys as we're shooting uh, a, a bit of a movie or hanging on the wires and some special effects things where all you can do is laugh or being wet in a tank at nighttime or just hanging out, waiting for the sun to set so you can get the night shot in the backyard of a lovely little scene that you're playing out with someone that you're supposed to, you know, um, have a, have a, have a crush on. I think all, all movies end up having these days of whimsical magic, of, of, of a shared experience that is some combination of the hardest you'll ever work, yeah, the most, uh, the most fun uh, you'll ever have at summer camp, and the most you'll ever learn uh, in one of those two or three college uh, courses you took in which somebody put everything in such clear terms that you don't even have to study for the test, you ace it. Not, not what I was, you know what? I've not, I'll be honest with you, not the answer I was expecting. Like, oh. I, I thought, incredible answer. Like, that's why I could see my face sort of like the whole time. Cause I was like, oh, I know what, I know what it's going to be. It's that moment where he's sitting in the theater and the, and the screen comes out and Forrest Gump starts playing and they worked on it for that long and he gets to have the bowl of popcorn and say, we, we did that. Like, I, it, it, I love that. I love that it's the journey. It's the hang, it's the memories, it's the it's all that stuff more than the 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 result. I will tell you, the worst movie I've ever made was one of the best experiences I ever had, and I mean worst movie ever made, as in when you see it in result, it doesn't work. Period. The end. Um, that that's the yin and the yang of oh hey that movie works and people like it. You've I've experienced both. There's no there's no doubt about it in my own head or even in the reaction of of the audience, but. You win one game and you lose the other. Okay, I made a movie called uh, the last movie I worked with Danny Streepek on, uh, The Da Vinci Code. We had so much fun making that movie. It was like the greatest scavenger hunt on the planet. I trust you recognize the Last Supper, the great by Leonardo da Vinci. If you would close your eyes, Lee, save us the parlor tricks. Sir Ian McKellen. I, I can't tell you how many people great times I had. On that movie, I celebrated my birthday in the Louvre Museum at three o'clock in the morning after I changed my shoes sitting on an apple box in front of the Mona Lisa so that we could run down the stairs running away from the bad guys in front of uh, in front of Winged Victory, one of the most famous statues in all the world. And then at the end of the night, the French crew brought out a cake in the Grand Salon and sang the French version of Happy Birthday to 
All right. That was the making of the Da Vinci Code. <clears throat> we premiered that movie at the Cannes Film Festival to about the worst reaction you could possibly imagine from a judicial audience. The sound of the footsteps walking out before the movie was over uh, was nearly deafening. And by the time the movie was over, there was literally, it was us and maybe 42 other people inside a motion picture theater that held 2,500 people. Then that movie went off and made close to a billion dollars at the box office. What do you really take away from all of that? I'm going to tell you right now. It was the hang with all those people. It was the birthday in the Louvre. It was changing shoes in front of the Mona Lisa. And the laughs that we had sitting in that cuckoo little car driving around uh, all the places that we had to drive around. It reminds me of that line of the book, walking out of a movie is a sin. It absolutely is. I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, you have to might sit there and, and until it's over. And by the way, you might be walking out of a movie that is god-awful when you see it, but it is revered as a classic in another 25 years. It's a wonderful life. Yeah. Tom Hanks, what a joy to talk to you about film. Oh, it was fun. It was fun. Thanks for coming on. Take care. I feel like when he said yeah to It's a Wonderful Life, he wasn't really responding to like me talking about the movie. I think he was responding to like the life he's had in, in film and, and TV. And also, if you walk out of a bad movie... Know that Tom Hanks is kind of judging you. Tom Hanks is a two-time Oscar winner, typewriter collector, published author. His first novel, The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece, is out today. If you want to share that interview with the Tom Hanks fan in your life, subscribe to our podcast, Q with Tom Power. That's the best way to get it out there to the, to the people who might want to hear it, I guess. Uh, tomorrow on the show, you might have heard about the new Canadian film Blackberry, all about the rise and fall of that thing everyone had in their pockets for a while. The star of the film, Glenn Howerton, will be here to talk about playing the real-life co-founder of Blackberry and why that film isn't so much about technology as it is about ambition. That's tomorrow on Q. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.